Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, we're joined by Ken Nguyen, founder and CEO of Republic. The world of private fundraising is going through a generational moment. Meme stocks, NFTs, Robinhood, everybody's looking to become an investor. And with right reason, the vast majority of wealth creation in the world has come from private assets, not public assets. The challenge historically, though, has been a lack of connectivity and access for the private investor. Private investors couldn't get involved, and the operational complexity for companies to take advantage of this investor base was too difficult up until now. Republic is an equity crowdfunding platform that's raised over $50 million in venture capital. And today, we chatted with Ken about the business and his thoughts on the future of investing. So Ken, I'm thrilled to have you on today. We're going to go deep into what's going on in the landscape of private markets and, and private investing today. But before we jump in, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to founding Republic? Ramin, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I have a bit of a non-typical you know, background because I had a prior career before founding uh, Republic. I started out as a lawyer uh, and spent a few years in asset management uh, and traditional finance uh, and actually uh, even did teaching full-time for almost two years uh, before joining AngelList as their general counsel. Uh, and we're going to dive in that uh, in a bit. But uh, through the, the 10 years or so uh, of building, you know, an if not expertise, then a familiarity with uh, legal regulatory framework, as well as the experience on the business asset management side. Uh, I never thought that everything would just kind of gel together uh, and, and led to uh, something that I now consider strength uh, to be building Republic and in the next phase of private investing. So let's set the stage, Ken, for what's going on in private markets right now, because it's truly generational, right? Over the last 10 years, private AUM has risen almost 3x to $6.5 trillion. And private equity and venture capital alone are a little bit over half of that. At the same time, there's less than half the number of public companies in the market today, right, compared to 20 years ago. So unpack a little bit of what's going on in the public and private markets today and, and how you're thinking about it. Well, companies are taking longer and longer to go public because of a number of reasons. I mean, the, the onerous compliance obligations that management would need to undertake once you go public is definitely a deterrence factor. And now companies can raise privately larger and larger chunk of money so they are able to stay private longer. It used to be that a, a, a typical company going IPO in the US, you know, 15, 20 years ago would be below a billion dollar valuation. Uh, and now you see that the norm is, you know, in the low tens of billions, if not higher. Uh, and that trend and I think will continue. And there's another uh, yet aspect of it that has remained relatively unchanged, which is how inaccessible private investments and private investing is to today for everyone. It's not just the non-accredited or non-millionaires. I think the average doctor, the average lawyer who may have a few million dollars in saving and net worth and yet have almost never invested in, in private investment, much less in startup and, and, uh, and other instrument. And I think the next wave, you're gonna see the democratization or the retailization of private investing. So uh, taking private, making private public again, uh, I think is the next trend. 
And that's the secret, right? The secret is really that wealth creation has been created in private markets and it hasn't been accessible. If you dig in on the private side and specifically in the technology companies, um, Republic is doing some interesting things around real estate, crypto, et cetera. Uh, so we can expand into that scope as well. But if you think specifically about technology companies, talk a little bit more about the traditional ways companies get financed and then where Republic specifically fits in that landscape. Uh, Ramin, if I may just make an observation that when we talk about private equity and venture capital, uh, this seems to be an assumption of status quo. Now, the entire industry has been in existence for a little bit more than half a century, 50 years to 70 years. And human civilization, as far as we know of it, stretch about five, 6,000 years, a little bit longer. So it's very clear that this is a beta product when it comes to getting business finance. So everything that we do now, there gotta be an assumption that there will be iterations and changes to come. So with that, if 20 years ago to almost you know, now or now-ish, that is, I obviously believe the Republic and, uh, and the retail space is changing that dynamic. But if you're a venture backable company, meaning that you have the potential of becoming a unicorn, then first you raise some friends and family. If you happen to be lucky enough to be living in Silicon Valley or have access to noted venture capitalists like yourself, then maybe you have a shot at getting checked from experienced investors who then can guide you and make the first effort to fundraise from VC a little bit easier. But the narrative is still the same. That is getting your business and your idea of finance from people in your network. Uh, and then as you grow, then you seek institutional backing at larger and larger amount. The problem, of course, is that if you don't come from a background that you know that has friends and families that can, you know, deploy thirty or fifty million thousand uh, dollars to give you that that head start, then you're in a bit of a bind. And or if you don't have a way to make yourself to experience angels, it's a little bit easier now. But I do think that the background where the person grew up, what uh, he or his family, uh, the background of all of these things can be a significant barrier. Uh, but obviously, going online platforms like AngelList uh, have made a major difference. And I think what we do at Republic is that we want to make financing a lot, a lot more accessible. Yeah, I think your, your tagline is really interesting, which is invest in the future you believe in. Um, I think, Ken, from my perspective, Republic comes at a really interesting time, right? The way I see it, and I'd love to get your, your take on this, I see it as a merger of three factors. So one is regulatory unlock, the second is technology, and the third is culture. And I want to unpack each of those three, um, but I'd love to get your reaction first to that framing and is that the way you see it also, or do you see other variables that are kind of driving this moment in time, you know, for a business like Republic to exist? You stated it perfectly, and I want to prioritize the cultural aspect of it or the social aspect of it. And the reason is this, it's not just about venture investing, it's about all forms of investing. It used to be, when I graduated from law school, you know, a bit over a decade ago, the thinking was that investing was something that you should do, but it's like as boring as going to the dentist. You got to do it uh, and you separate out your passion, your interest from the need to, you know, save and grow the wealth that you have. And I think the trend that we're seeing growing is 
combining passion and profit. Uh, and as that grows, it's gonna permeate into all different asset classes and not just venture capital, but technology in and by itself is highly compelling and highly relevant to, to culture. But I couldn't agree more. So let's, let's start with the culture piece and we can maybe go through each of those variables almost in the inverse order. Um, I think the culture point is actually also the most interesting. Um, I see it from two perspectives. I see the supply side and the demand side. So what I mean by that is on the supply side, you know, historically it hasn't been attractive for startups to raise from the crowd, individuals. Um, there's a different value prop than, than institutional investors. Um, and then on the demand side, you've got individuals that are actually hungry to participate in growth, right? Namely because of what we talked about before, right? You might have, you know, whether it's thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, low millions of dollars, et cetera, you might have all the sophistication to actually invest in these asset classes, but you don't actually have um, the accessibility. How do you think about the cultural background of what's going on right now in investing and how that fuels Republic? And then after, after we talk about culture, we'll, we'll jump a little bit into the regulatory side and the technology side as well. I think research uh, studies um, that have been done in different forms generally point to a certain happening with the new generation. And I think it may be a proliferation of social media, of the news being so accessible, and that people can consume stories like headlines, grabbing stories, and want to be a part of it maybe that's been driving the underlying current that people want to be part of, to be more engaged. You know, for millennials, for example, I think some 80% care about the cause, the reason why the mission of a company, when making an investment, they're much more in tune and much more uh, engaged with, with you know, all the relevancy in, in society than the generation before. Uh, and I think that naturally the need to be a part of that narrative, there's no better way to align that than economically align with the technology, the business, the people that you care about. And because of that, that you're gonna see the interest in owning in investing, I call it either micro ownership or community equity. That is, if you are part of a, uh, if you're part of a community, if you're a customer and you're part of a company's community, if you're uh, an evangelizer, an advisor, you're part of that community, every community member will come to expect that she has the right to be uh, a, an equity owner, it may be a small sliver. And I think that you just see a glimmer of that through whether it's Reddit, a GameStop saga, or the NFT trend. But that trend of micro ownership is here to last. And I think that in a few years, it will be a global mainstream adoption uh, and not something that only for the tech savvy uh, or for those who have you know, disposable income. What's, what's going on, Ken, on the regulatory side? So this is pretty, from my understanding, this is a pretty new phenomenon because of the rules, right? So uh, give us a better understanding of how the rules have evolved um, over, you know, to what's now legal or what's now possible. And then give us a little bit of color also. You just alluded to it in your answer, but give us a little bit of color of how you're thinking about international regulation, right? So, you know, a bunch of the folks that are listening here are not in the United States. They're also overseas. Um, and they're thinking, okay, Ken, I, I agree with you conceptually as well. I want to participate. How do I participate? 
Um, but there's obviously different jurisdictions or sort of different legislations, and there's different levels of regulatory uh, maturity across the world as well. So maybe paint the picture of what's going on in the regulatory side that unlocks this. And then I'd love to get a little bit more of your perspective on how you're thinking about uh, regulatory internationally as well. Absolutely. Uh, what we when you talk about private investing or securities offering, uh, it is regulated country by country. In many cases, it's state by state as well. So here in the US, securities law is a federal law. Since the 1930s, that's 80 years, 90 years ago, there's this rule that you gotta be a millionaire, proverbially an accredited investor in order to invest privately Otherwise, in order to sell to non-millionaires, you have to go through that really high hurdle of becoming a public company. So that law lasted all the way to 2016. Now, there's a, uh, I mean, I don't know that most people realize that legal evolution happens a lot more slowly than technical evolution, technical changes, and certainly social changes. So this this arbitrage throughout from like the 90s into the 2000s, 2010, that it didn't make sense that a non-millionaire, a non-accredited investor in the US could spend thousands of dollars in the casinos, could buy, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in lottery ticket, and yet he could not invest in his friend's private company, not even $20, not $10. So clearly it didn't make sense. Uh, and on the other hand, founders could not tap, but founders who did not have millionaire friends had no way of raising friends and family capital. So the law only changed in 2016 to really open up that door to allow non-accredited investors, everyday folks to invest privately. Now, because for almost a century, normal people could not invest privately. No one knew what that means or what that meant. Now, most people still don't know what investing in a startup actually means. So the past five years, we've been doing a lot of work to getting the word out and educating and presenting information to explain what owning uh, a convertible note actually means as an investor. Uh, and so all of the progress that you have seen thus far, Romain, I really think that barely scratches the surface of the true potential. So you guys have been working on the plumbing you know, for years. Um, I think externally, outside in, when you look at the company, um, March was kind of a, a breakthrough moment you know, in many senses for you guys, right? Part of it was extrinsic, but but some of the regulatory change uh, that really has unlocked opportunity. Uh, but part of it was actually putting proof in the pudding. So, you know, in the March timeframe, uh, you guys ran two campaigns at first, right, uh, that were uh, relevant or allowed under the new Reg CF rules, which expanded the ability for companies to raise up to $5 million instead of $1 million. Um, and both of those campaigns, I believe, raised the full amount from something like 15,000 investors, individual investors. Talk a little bit more about how was that milestone movement, you know, moment for the team and what's momentum been like for the business, you know, since then? Very fortunate to, to find two, you know, mission aligned 
partners that really exemplify what crowd investing or the potential of crowd investing is about. And that's Gumroad uh, on the one hand, uh, founded by Sahil Lenvigia and Backstage Capital founded by uh, Arlen Hamilton. Uh, and yeah, they uh, validated, I obviously didn't know how it would perform, uh, but Gumroad closed the campaign within a day, 5 million. Imagine there was the bulk of an entire round that he was doing, leaving only 1 million for Naval and I think a couple of VCs to come in. So that was the first case whereby a venture back tech company raised a round, I think it was a Series C, and the majority of it was done through the community, giving uh, his own massive community the opportunity to participate. Uh, ever since, uh, Romain, like this past month, we did a $24 million token sale uh, in half an hour. Uh, I think last week, uh, we raised nearly $30 million uh, for a company called RoboCache uh, within one week. And so I think it's just at the beginning, but the trend is going to be up months and down months, but overall, more and more established companies are going to know that their community want access, want to be involved, and that it would open up the opportunity for, for their customers and community members to, to participate. I, I completely empathize with the point that we're in the first innings of democratized private investing. If we, if we assume that premise is correct or we accept that premise, how do you think about you know, what are the possibilities that you're most excited about? So democratization of access, let's let's take that as a premise that, you know, is occurring, will continue to occur, will get accelerated. But if you kind of put your macro hat on and say, what are the implications of that at a broader level? How, how do you think about that? I mean, in the past uh, 30 or 40 years, um, I think there's something like 1.3 or 1.4 billion people around the world lifted out of abstract poverty. A lot of them were in China. Now, clearly not financial, uh, not philanthropy and not governmental policy. It's been capitalism and businesses that grew into household brand and create hundreds of thousands and millions of jobs that put food on the table around the world. And all of that happened in what is a really short period of time companies that were picked by banks and financial institutions and saying that these business ideas and people from so-and-so background, they're going to win and they're going to grow. Now, the way I look at the next wave of, of democratized access to capital is this. It's just like rain to like a desert. You don't know which tree is gonna become a cactus and which one's gonna become like a pine tree. You know it's gonna be greener. So if imagine if around the world, so many more ideas that can get that initial capital to build enough traction so that they may have a chance to become appealing to venture capital firms that perhaps a decade out, you're gonna see so many more, the Uber, the Airbnb, the Stripe of the world around the world and generate that many more jobs. And I think the third example of what I wanna give is that because I'm the last one of five, my family immigrated from Vietnam. I'm the only one in my family who's not an engineer or a doctor. All of these professions, lawyers, doctors, historians, teachers, up until now, 
the barrier and their involvement or the barrier between them and entrepreneurship, their involvement into entrepreneurship is a zero. Mm. If when they in college and in graduate school or as a young teacher can invest $10, $20 in a restaurant, in a company that, that she loves, she's gonna share her expertise and become that advisor. A doctor is gonna become an advisor to a healthcare company. So all of a sudden you're gonna be able to involve a lot more members of society into the process of ideation, of building innovations into businesses and businesses into corporations. So the hope is a much, much more connected world and that necessarily will lead to more ideas more companies, more businesses, more food on the table. And overall, it's a, I mean, it's a world that I don't know that I, I hope to see it in my lifetime in this decade, but it's certainly a world that, that I think anyone can aspire to see. Ken, how much, of your, how much of your background as an immigrant has affected the way you think about this problem? And I'll, I'll give some personal context. Um, I'm a second generation. Our family is second generation. My parents were, were immigrants came to this country with nothing. Um, and a lot of the way, uh, a lot of what I ascribe my mentality to or the way I think about things is certainly coming from an immigrant family. Um, and I, I, think, I think one of the pieces that you're mentioning, which really um, I can really resonate with is it's less so this idea of, you know, is a $10 investment, is a $50 investment gonna turn into a billion dollars? That's not gonna happen. But it's more so what is the mindset uh, that's actually getting inculcated within people, right? When you start to see very small senses of ownership or starting to see, you know, money double or triple or having a, having skin in the game and skin in the outcome, it starts to rewire the way you think, right? And I think the impact of when you take the rewiring of that across a full generation, like you were just suggesting, uh, is really understated how powerful that can be. So I'm, I'm curious, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to you and I'm, I'm curious how much of your background as an immigrant has informed your perspective just on this problem. I think there are two ways, uh, Ramin. One is that uh, someone uh, said that how you see a problem, an issue, or how you see anything very much is a function of where you sit and so naturally as an immigrant, either first, you know, second generation, and even for me, um, I listen to stories from my parents who obviously grew up in a very different society, a very different country. So on common issues about education, about investing, about business, uh, I think most immigrants probably benefit from being able, from, from having been in, at least a couple of seats rather than just you know one one lens so that's one uh, and i think being able to empathize with people uh, of, of different background i think is, is crucial but i think it lends itself to perhaps a a a unique lens in in solving issue and the second one uh, i think very much is about perseverance but the notion of fairness um Growing up, uh, I think when we settled down in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, this is in the late 80s, early 90s. And as I grew up in the late 90s, 
I mean, it was just headline news everywhere about tech company and about products that we started to use, you know, the eBay, the Amazon, the Google of the world. And of course, every kid, at least, you know, in my high school, the even, uh, you know, at, at lunchtime, the question was like, hey, you know, my dad works at so-and-so company and, you know, my dad is an investor, whatever that meant. Uh, and so the narrative, I can see it in the back of my mind was like, hey, how come I want to be part of the story as well? And I think it's so much is, is true that dollar amount, how much you have in your bank account, doesn't nearly matter as much to one's happiness as the, the fairness, the notion that it's fair that I'm part of it. So I think down the road, the next wave of companies going IPO, if you have tens of thousands of early customers, of early adopter, being able to say that, hey, I got 150 bucks because this amazing company just went public and I was, you know, one of the first user eight years ago, you're going to lead to a reduction in the sense of inequity in society. And I think that's, if you allow people to be part of the story, part of this narrative, part of society, um, I think that's what we're seeing uh, lacking or being reduced in, in, the, in America over the past 10, 20 years. And maybe this is a solution to that. But uh, I think I owe everything uh, to, to seeing how my parents rebuild their life uh, in this country. And this definitely almost, you know, we're a function of our past uh, in many ways. So, so much of it has to do with me being an immigrant for sure. Yeah, Ken, I, I really like the framing, especially the, the thought process on kind of how, you know, companies have the opportunity basically to unbundle some of those economics and share them with community. And then what that impact has, not just economically, you know, on those users or community that's participating, but also, you know, from a mindset perspective. For Ken, you've been incredibly generous with your time today. We're so excited to see how I think the private market investing landscape continues to unfold and, and Republic's role in that macro trend. So Thanks again so much for coming on the show and, and uh, spending some time with us.